Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. My next guest has been described as an economic futurist. He knew when he was 16 years old that he wanted to be an economist, 16. He's written many books. He's authored many articles. He's contributed to Forbes.com. He's been a professor. He's advised companies. And he's here today to talk to us about what's going on in the economy, what some of this stuff means, what we can expect from this crazy inflation, what happens next, and um, what we all can do, I I think, to better prepare uh, for some of the uncertainties. Please welcome Dr. Bill Connerly, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining me, Bill. Appreciate having you here now. Happy to be here. So look, People are listening every day to stories about the horrid inflation that we're all experiencing right now. What is it? We know it means prices go up, but that seems to be a regular occurrence in modern life. What is inflation and why does it happen? Well, inflation is rises in average prices. So we buy a lot of stuff and we're not too concerned if lettuce goes up when there's a bad crop year, uh, a drought uh, where the lettuce is grown. But when prices across the board for a wide variety of things go up, that's inflation. Oftentimes it happens when wages go up. So you might say, well, if wages are up and prices are up, what's the big deal? But there are a couple of things. One is a lot of people feel ripped off you know, when they get an 8% raise, they feel like they deserved it. And when they see 8% higher prices, they feel ripped off. So there's a public perception. And also we've seen, we economists have seen over uh, a lot of history that economies with low inflation tend to have stable growth, but economies with high inflation tend to go up and down and up and down. So that's why we're um, so concerned about inflation. What effect does the stimulus packages that uh, have been proposed in past, what effect have those had on this inflation? Because some have said that it's because the government put money into the economy um, right after the pandemic that we're seeing this happen right now. Is that true? Uh, Yeah, I, I believe excessive stimulus is what's causing this inflation. We had had it in two flavors. We had the federal government spending a lot of money, sending out checks to a lot of people. We also had the nation's central bank, the Federal Reserve, virtually printing money. And we economists can argue among ourselves about how much of it was the uh, spending side and how much of it was the printing money side, but they were really all part of the same program of trying to get the economy going after the pandemic. And in the aggregate, they just caused too much stimulus relative to our ability to produce goods and services. But so let's think about what that means then, Bill, for everyday people, because Yes, you all are economists, but you're still humans <laughs> and you've got friends and family right. who are struggling to pay their bills, I'm sure, yeah. you know, when the pandemic happened and the world shut down and people were afraid. So if there was too much stimulus, is it your view that we should have had some sim- stimulus, we just did too much? Should the government not be doing that? What would have been a- an approach that you think might have avoided the inflation that we're seeing right now? 
if anything, if there was anything that could have been done. Right. It turns out that we uh, we did not need, I don't think, any stimulus at all. The economy rebounded. But I'm not going to be overly critical. It certainly was unfamiliar territory, you know, a sudden pandemic, the lockdowns, and there were individual people who were definitely hurt and, you know, benefited from the extra unemployment insurance, the, the checks going in. But the big picture was the economy as a whole did not need more stimulus. If anything, it almost needed less because we were less able to do the things that we wanted to do. We could not go out to restaurants, remember, in uh, early uh, 2020. And so adding more money when people cannot spend the money they've got that doesn't help uh, help the economy. It almost seems like you're suggesting that if there'd been a more, tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but if I take everything that you just said, it seems that an approach where you're stimulating the people who were out there having to go to work, because there were people, there were bus drivers, yeah. there were people who were putting gas in tanks, doctors, nurses, who were out there in the world kind of more than the rest of us. Do you think that a more targeted approach would have been appropriate? Or do you think that no approach? You think we should have just let it all ride? Well, the, the people who were out working were getting paychecks. So from True. an economic point of view, your heart goes out to the people on the front lines, without a doubt. But in terms of the overall economy, those people did not need paychecks. The people who lost their jobs, the, the, the waiters and cooks, hotel uh, uh, maids who lost their jobs. Yeah, th they needed some support. Uh, we have a system of unemployment insurance that helps those and being a little bit more generous with that, I understand that. But we ended up being overly generous. What happened was the people making these decisions, they thought back to the financial crisis 2008, 2009, and they thought, we didn't do enough back then. Let's not repeat that mistake. So, so they went overboard this time. I mean, they're, they're good-hearted people. They're smart people. I'm not criticizing them as people. But in retrospect, we can see that the wrong things were done. Are we headed toward a recession, Bill? Uh, I always, when people ask me that, I always say, yes, we're headed towards a recession. And I try to change the subject before you ask me when. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't see a recession uh, this year, 2022. I do not see a recession in 2023. Uh, there's so much stimulus and the stimulus takes a couple of years to work through the system. It's sort of like a snake eats a, a, a rat and you can see that bulge in the snake until the rat's fully digested back towards the tail. And we've got a bulge in our stomach right now and it's going to be a year and a half or so before we have worked that through. Um, then whether we have a recession in 2024 or is it 2025 depends upon the Federal Reserve and how much they push up interest rates. If they do it perfectly, no recession. But they have a very difficult job to do. And if they make a mistake, then we'll be going into a recession. I'm glad you uh, started talking about the Fed because one of the things I want to do on this podcast is to really break down in very easy layman's, yeah. layperson's terms um, about who these entities are, what these conditions are, and how they happen. Tell people, what does the Fed do? The Federal Reserve does uh, two things. The, the role that's less 
uh, important for our discussion right now is they uh, supervise banks, make sure they're acting prudently and not um, taking in depositors' money and uh, wasting it. The, uh, the more important thing they do is they control how much money is in the system, and through that they control what interest rates are, especially the uh, short-term interest rates like six-month uh, CDs. And they do that not directly, but imagine a big complicated machine and they pull levers on one end and at the other end uh, comes out money. Uh, it used to be a printing press, but now with everything being electronic, it's a, a virtual printing press. And what the Federal Reserve did was they wanted to keep interest rates low to help the economy, virtually printed a lot of money. And, you know, if you just think about it, if everybody has more, more money, uh, they're going to be spending more. But we're not producing more stuff or a little bit more stuff, but not a lot more stuff. And if there's more money, but not more stuff, uh, prices will go up. Speaking of stuff, Bill, uh, why isn't there more stuff? I mean, we've been dealing with these supply side uh, shortages, supply chain problems since the pandemic. They don't seem to be completely alleviated. I can't imagine that a war the war in Ukraine uh, is ultimately going to help, and the pandemic hasn't entirely gone away. Why are we dealing with these shortages? And is there any suggestion of relief on the horizon? I think there is a suggestion of relief, but the biggest reason for the shortages right now is uh, a labor shortage. There are not as many people working as there were in 2019. Some people took early retirement, rethinking what's important in their life. Uh, some people had uh, kids to take care of, and with the schools not open reliably, daycares were closed, they had to stay home. They're coming back to work, so that's the optimistic side. And then there were some people who were getting checks in the mail, and they said, I don't really need to work. You know, and uh, if I don't need to, I'm going to sit back and, you know, maybe they're playing video games, maybe they're writing poetry. They were not working. But those people are also gradually coming back to work because those checks are farther in the past. So it's going to get better. But we're in a, in a, a decade where baby boomers are retiring. The, the generation that's getting into their working years is not a very big generation. So we're used to the economy growing, but our labor force, working age people are, are not growing in number. So when you hear that, um, gee, I can't get the bicycle that I want, you know, bicycles are on back order. Well, the, the company that makes the bicycles is having trouble hiring workers. And when they do make the bicycles, they're having trouble finding truck drivers to get that to the lo local bike shop. So maybe 80% of our supply chain problems are actually labor problems. Do you see any sense of that changing? I mean, it strikes me, Bill, that without some sort of immigration policy that will allow more workers to come in and fill up these supply side you know, these labor shortages that based on what you're saying, unless a whole bunch of people start having a lot of children really, really quickly, <laughs> uh, this could be a long-term problem in the country. Is that right? Yes, I think it is. And, and even if, um, you know, the millennials started having children fast, it takes like 18 years to grow an 18-year-old. You got to grow, grow a kid. <laughs> yeah, right. I know it's, I've, I've raised a couple, it takes a while before they're useful citizens. So yeah, immigration was solve that. 
Uh, the number of people we have, uh, you know, hard numbers on legal immigrants and estimates of undocumented immigrants coming through. And the total number of immig immigrants is very low, used to be much higher. And some of that was the Trump administration. And administ uh, immigration policy is pretty much the same in the Biden administration, although President Biden is far more polite about it than President Trump was, but it's the same policy. And I don't get a sense uh, in the political realm that there's um, going to be a change. With the business people I talk to would all love to see immigrants. And, you know, you go to a crusty old factory manufacturing manager, and I, I've done this, and I've said, well, tell me about the employees who work out. And they love the immigrants. Uh, some of them don't speak English pretty well, but they've got a work ethic. And uh, one of the things they like is if there's another opening, they can say to somebody who, who came here from, say, Honduras, do you know anybody else who wants work? And they say, oh, there's somebody at my church. And uh, so businesses are struggling for workers. Uh, they would love to see more immigrants. But there are a number of people who are afraid that more immigration would um, cause more competition, lower wages, and people wouldn't earn as much. I mean, people, that, that's constantly been the drumbeat against uh, allowing immigration, I think, since forever. Yeah. I mean, since we've had industry yeah. in America. But based on what you're saying, it just seems not to be true. We don't have, uh, according to your analysis, part of the shortage that we're dealing with now is because we just don't have enough people working. Let's talk, let's go back to the Fed uh, for a minute. The Fed, the institution that's responsible for setting interest rates and really determining United States monetary policy writ large. Uh, do you think the Fed is doing a good job? No. And I, I, they're smart people. They're well-educated people. Uh, their hearts are in the right place, but I think they've made a, a fundamental mistake here and they've let inflation get out of control. And now they're in a tough spot because when they hit the brakes and try to slow things down, there's like a two-year time lag between cause and effect. And in order to be successful, they're going to have to keep their foot on the brakes for two years. And halfway through that two-year period, unemployment will start increasing but they won't have yet had a big effect on inflation. And so they're going to be tempted to give up the fight on inflation and hit the gas. Uh, we went through this in the 70s and early 1980s. And once we took the medicine, we had very severe recession in the early 80s. But once we took the medicine, inflation came down. And then we had a period with very few recessions. Uh, you know, we've been running seven to 10 years between recessions, whereas uh, before that, it was up and down and up and down all the time. Uh, so we've had a pretty good run, but I'm afraid that we're going to have more booms and more busts after the next two years get through. You just said that you don't think that the Fed's doing a good job because you think that they won't raise rates enough in the near term in order to stave off a recession down the road? Do I understand you correctly? I think that uh, they should have started uh, raising rates last summer. So they're already behind the curve. Uh, they may 
stick with it, but there's also a fair chance that they're going to give up the fight against inflation. And that will just make inflation more ingrained and lead us into, I think, a, a, a series of boom-bust cycles. There have been some criticisms of the Fed as an institution and in that it's you know too intrusive, too interventionist. Is there really an alternative? Yeah, you certainly know uh, what I'm about to, this little story I'm about to tell. Some of my viewers may not. We've been having panics and depressions and recessions for a long time in this country, way before the 1930s. Um, but there are two I'm thinking of. There was a panic in 1893 and there was a panic in 1907. You know who bailed us out of those panics? J.P. Morgan. And the first one, he loaned the government money. And then the second uh, panic in 1907, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Dr. Connerly, because he had so much leverage over big businesses in the company, he essentially got the heads of lots of important companies to come to his house. He made them pull an all-nighter and said, we're going to bail out uh, the companies. We're going to bail out the railroads and the banks and the lenders and the like that are worth it. And here are the ones that we're going to let fail. It wasn't the government. It wasn't big government. It wasn't Congress. It wasn't Democrats or Republicans. It was one man. And we have a Fed now because a lot of folks thought that you shouldn't have that kind of concentrated power in one man. So, you know, if we didn't have a Fed, what, who's going to take care of it? Bezos? Do we, do we think that Jeff Bezos is going to like bail out the government or get a bunch of people to come to his house and say, get a bunch of his friends to decide, you know, who gets help and who doesn't? I mean, is there really an alternative to the Fed is well, the loaded question I'm asking? Yeah, I don't think bailouts are the right answer. They appear to be in one particular situation. It's like, oh, if we just sort of help these people who invested money and now they're losing money, um, then the economy will be fine. But that sets a precedent. And I think that there are a lot of people in on Wall Street who think uh, that they deserve a bailout if they make a bad choice. And that what does that lead them to do? It leads them to take on more and more risk. And we saw that with uh, in 2008, early on, a big uh, brokerage firm, Bear Stearns, ran into trouble. And uh, the Federal Reserve is trying to sort of find somebody to take them over. And they don't want anybody to lose money. But at some point, I think you have to say to people, if you're investing millions of dollars, you're big boys and big girls, and you should take your lumps if it doesn't work out, because we encourage more risky behavior through bailouts. But someone is going to do the bailout, is my point. If it's not the Fed, yeah. uh, it might be, yeah. you know, back in the day, it was one very powerful financier. And, and, yeah. and uh, to the point that you just made, Big when people make big risky decisions, they should take their lumps. But what happens when other people who have less ability to absorb those lumps that are resulting from the choices that those other people made? Those lumps for them are really calamitous. Uh, an investment banker who makes a bad choice might be able to take his lumps. What about his secretary? What about the sure. people you know who are clean in the office that he stays in or she stays in all night? Like those you know, there's a domino effect of those bad decisions. Do you think there's any room to accommodate the people who are kind of on the lower end of the chain who really feel the brunt of someone else's bad bet? That's the challenge, to provide some kind of safety net 
that does not encourage risky activities. And it's an imperfect science. We've got some of it through things like unemployment insurance. But I think the important thing I've learned is that we do not need bailouts to get out of a recession. So, you know, in, I think it was 82, we hit 10% unemployment. And that means 90% of the people uh, had their jobs still. And at that point, when 10% of the people have stopped buying discretionary things, they've stopped buying cars, they've stopped buying new clothes, they're cutting back, uh, the car dealers start uh, offering discounts uh, to get the other 90% to buy. And the economy tends to bounce back on its own. The people who do have jobs take advantage. They say, this is a good time to buy a car. Interest rates are low. This is a good time to buy a new house. And the, the housing construction industry comes back. The economy is naturally coming back to equilibrium. And I think the uh, best solution for you know periodic recessions is having some kind of uh, safety net, but a light safety net so that we do not encourage more riskiness in the future. You want like a safety, like a safety feather pillow, not a full feather. <laughs> well, you know, it ought to hurt when you fall down. And when you are, I am guessing, Tanya, that when you were um, a, a little toddler taking your first steps, you fell down like we all did, and it hurt a little bit. And it's actually good that it hurt. It sort of taught you, oh, falling down is not good. And, um, you know, we need to take some lumps every now and then. I, I'm, I'm sounding moralistic, but I think that's uh, the economist in me says that provides incentives for people to behave in a responsible way. You're still a human, a human economist. I think sometimes people think that those of you who study and you know crunch numbers and look at policies yeah. don't always uh, appreciate the impact. But I think you do, because we, we've been talking about that. Um, let's talk about the stock market. Sure. Uh, is the stock market really a good measure of how well an economy is doing? Uh, you know, it, it for those of us who have assets and resources to play in the market, yeah. then sure, it's a good barometer for some of us. But uh, is it really a good measure of the economy as a whole? No, no. Uh, the stock market is important to those of us who have money invested. And a lot of people who don't think of themselves as investors have a 401k plan that's in the market or their pension plan is invested in the market. So the stock market is important to people, but it's not the economy. And it's based upon expectations for the future. And if one day we are really, really pumped up about the future and the next day we're less excited, the stock market goes down. Even though we're still positive, we're just not as positive as we used to be. So the stock market goes up and down way more than, than like employment does, way more than people's well-being changes up and down. So I keep an eye on it because I kind of have to keep an eye on things, but I would recommend to most people, uh, don't pay any attention to the stock market at all. And we had, I think one of the, the mistakes the Federal Reserve makes is they're too worried about the stock market. And again, mm -hmm. let them take their lumps. Uh, of course, I'm not, you know, I'm not on Wall Street. I'm in Portland, Oregon, <laughs> not, as, not quite as connected. Something that does impact most people, 
um, is where you're going to live, like yeah. buying a house. That used to really be a barometer of, if not success, it was something that you did. You know, you go to school, you get a degree or you get a good job, you buy a house in order to have a stake, you know, to kind of have a stake in the community, a more permanent stake. The notion was that that's how you contribute, you know, and, and, and uh, you build things from the ground up by having lots of people with stakes in their local communities. It's so hard to do that. It seems like younger people are less inclined to do that. There's much more transitory living. Um, but it still is, you know, a measure. It's what people, it's young professionals, older professionals, yeah. people who aren't professional. It's important. Home ownership is important. Uh, with increasing interest, it was already hard. With increasing, uh, increasing interest rates, it's going to get harder. What's your advice to folks who want to, you know, get their own piece of ground and own it one day? Um, it, how do you do that anymore? Well, I would say to those people, you have to juggle different things in your life. You know, the desire for a home, but you also want uh, a nice car. You want to go on a vacation, that kind of thing. Uh, the people for whom uh, a home is a high priority, almost all of them can get it, but they're going to have to give up something. And one of the things they may have to give up is living in California or living in New York. If you're going to be uh, fussy about where you live, you may not be able to be fussy about um, spending money. There are places in the country, perfectly fine places, where you can get a decent house for $150,000, $200,000. They tend to be in the Midwest, uh, oftentimes smaller communities. The winters are going to be pretty harsh there. The people are nice. Um, but, you know, if you say, I want to be able to own a house and I want to live on the beach in California, um, you know, if you're a middle-class person, those are just incompatible goals. What is something that you think, Bill, both sides, both major parties get wrong about the economy? I mean, you know, Republicans will say Democrats always do this. Democrats will say Republicans always do that. From your perspective, uh, you're a, your most apolitical uh, perspective. You know, you're just now putting on. I'm as the political as anybody, Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, really, I mean, are we all? We we, yeah. we are who we are. Yeah. But you have, uh, you know, credibility and some analysis, and you know, some stuff that you didn't just learn on Facebook. Right. Uh, so, what do you think that both sides get wrong? I think that the people, uh, uh, two related things. The people in office are. To, are more committed to their party than to their country. You don't mean these people in office. You mean everybody once they're in office. Yeah, yeah. The people in Congress and the people in the state oh, legislature. I, I, uh, mm -hmm. They think their party is more important than the country as a whole. And in order to get reelected, they're trying to bring home money to their districts or their states. So... Consider this, what's like the most important thing the government, the federal government does, the single most important thing? Everybody has maybe a different list, but most people have top three being defense, 
you know, we need to protect our ourselves, and it's in the Constitution. Conservatives agree with that. But when even a conservative politician hears about uh, plans to cut a, a, a base in the congressman's district or cut a, a weapons program that has a factory in a particular state, they're not concerned about the country as a whole. They're concerned about, hey, come re-election, I want to tell my constituents that I brought money into the state. So they're, they're putting sort of their own re-election as well as their party ahead of the country. And I, that's Democrats and Republicans are both very, very guilty of that. Before we go, Bill, I like to end on something of an optimistic note. Right. And you wrote a piece, I think it was in Forbes, about uh, how to, you were advising people about how to advise young people yeah. about being uh, money conscious or, or, or money management. What advice would you give to a young person in this environment? Because I, I, I got to say, I'm not going to date myself, but the world is so different. I mean, you know, when I was in high school and college, it was sort of like you go to college. If you, you know, if you get an advanced degree and you get a decent job, you will be fine. And when I came out of college, when I came out of law school, the world was just full of opportunity that I just don't see now, frankly, yeah. for, I, I take that back. It's a different type of opportunity. Yeah. Um, it's a different type of opportunity. What's your advice for young people who, you know, they're like, okay, I just heard this economic futurist say that there might be some bad news on the horizon. Yeah. You know, we might be moving toward a recession. Uh, it's going to be harder for me to buy a house. The stock market is not the end all be all. I want to put down my stake and build something for my life. What do you tell that young person? How did they start right now in this climate? The thing that keeps coming back to me, first of all, is that uh, money has some importance, but it's not the whole point of life. The whole point of life is satisfaction, and it uh, is different things for different people. It's family, it's friends, maybe it's church, maybe it's golf, uh, maybe it's travel. Uh, but think about what you really want. And uh, if you're not happy when you're poor, you probably won't be happy when you're rich. Um, however, uh, you'll have fewer headaches when you have money. Uh, you don't worry when the mechanic says you need a new radiator. Uh, and I was at that point early in my, um, you know, when I was trying to get through uh, uh, college in my early career that if I had a car problem, it was really, really tough because I had no extra money. So it's, it's better to have money than no money, but money is not nearly as important. And the other thing that uh, a lot of people don't realize is uh, you can probably be happy and help the world in a lot of different ways. And some people just say, hey, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a mechanic. Uh, there are probably a lot of good things you could do. Uh, you might as well pick the one that makes a little more money. Uh, and I wouldn't take a miserable job just to make more money. But if you have a choice between two or three different uh, occupations, uh, take the one that makes more money. It'll just lubricate everything else going on. Life is about uh, having satisfying relationships more than uh, having money. That's an economist for you. <laughs> what is going on in your life, in your head at 16 years old that makes you know that this was what you wanted to do with your life? I had a good head for mathematics, but I thought math was boring. 
I was interested in politics, interested in business, but I thought politics in particular lacked a foundation. It was me saying, I want this, and you saying, you want that. And then when I discovered uh, economics, I was thinking, oh, wow, this has a nice logical, mathematical foundation for political issues. And then as I got into it, I, um, yeah, I, I still pay attention to economics for politics, but I just got really interested in business. And so today I help business leaders translate what's going on in the economy to what they're doing and help them think through, gee, is this labor shortage temporary or do I have to take a long-term perspective? Should I change my supply chain? Should I stop importing stuff from China? Uh, I help business leaders with those economic questions uh, as they're making business decisions. And I keep doing it. I could retire, but it's just so much fun and it always changes. I love it. You know, that's what happens when you start doing something that you dreamt about when you were 16. <laughs> uh, uh, congratulations to you on finding a life path that makes you so happy. And thank you for coming here uh, to help break down uh, some terms and concepts that I think people sometimes just throw around and, uh, you know, without really digging in. Um, please do come back. I, I hope you'll join me again. I'd, I'd be delighted to. Thanks for the conversation, Tanya. Thanks, Bill. 